Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Flagrant Take Podcast. I'm your host, Fred Johnson, and with me today is a very special guest. Um, I know the phrase usually is that you never want to meet your heroes, and maybe this is a safe distance because we're doing this over the phone, but uh, my guest for today is somebody that I've followed since I was 18 years old. Um, And for those who know me now, I am not such a tender age doe anymore, and uh, this person is somebody whose entertainment, whose brand, whose content I consume on a daily basis, sometimes to the much chagrin of my wife, but that's another story. Um, you know, listen, I, there's so many different superlatives and adjectives I can add on to this individual, but uh, hopefully my fellow BSPs are out here and, and checking this out because today with me, I have a legend, an icon and a hero of mine, one Mr. Phil Henry. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Fred. Appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. First and foremost, thank you again for your time and coming on. And uh, the hardest part in in researching and and trying to conduct this interview was narrowing down all the questions that, you know, following somebody for 14, 15 years might bring. So (laughs) I do ask for your patience and just, you know, bear with me because I am trying not to fan out in this moment. (laughs) No, it's cool. I'm a... It's not that I think I'm such a great thing. It's that I get it about I get it about how how you know how hard this work is. So, absolutely, absolutely. And let me tell you because without your show, there is no flagrant take. And what I say by that is, you know, we know of your years and your time in terrestrial radio. And for you, I came across you on fifteen thirty a.m. in the Cincinnati, Ohio market. And from there, you know, I've transitioned and moved down to North Carolina. And, you know, I was able to come across your show and revisit it off of, you know, iTunes and and podcasting. And then when you went, you know, strictly digital, you know, I've been able to follow your journey. And so for my question for you, you know, we'll we'll go back to the beginning. What initially drew you to radio? first moment I heard it, um, but the, the biggest uh, moment for me was when my family and I were driving back to Toronto, Canada. I was only five years old, but we were all packed into this uh, 1956 Mercury, and my father was driving us to Canada to visit for the, for a couple of weeks in the summer, and I remember standing, that's how small I was, standing up in the back seat listening to the radio with my father, and he had it on all night as he, as he was driving through the night. And, I heard these voices fading in and out, and I heard these radio stations fading in and out, and I heard these guys talking directly to me. They had the weather, they were talking about a song they were playing, and I just thought it was, I just wanted to know where those guys were, and I wanted to do that, you know? It seemed like a, like they were the masters of their domain, and they had the, the attention of, I don't know how many tens of thousands, millions of people, and it was just one little voice there in this little speaker and they were running the show, man, and I and and saying it seemed like saying anything they wanted to, and uh, playing anything they wanted to, and talking about anything they wanted to, and they they sounded friendly and they sounded familiar and they sounded like guys that I wanted to know. Uh, so that was that that was the beginning, and uh, from that day forward, even though I thought about other jobs like being a writer, um, being a doctor, and all that stuff you'd want to be to make your mother happy, I. Uh, I knew the radio was going to be there someplace, you know. Now, did you always have, uh, were you ever shy at all? Would, did you always feel that you and your personality alone could entertain and captivate an audience? Never, 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 ever. I was super shy. 
I knew I had friends who thought I was funny, and so anybody that got to know me knew knew that I was a personable guy. But getting up on a stage and, and, and holding the attention of people was was the furthest thing from my mind. Um, I had a real uh, you know insecurity, or I don't know if I had an insecurity complex, but I was a super in, uh, insecure and and super um, uh, introverted individual. Understand. Um, and it's interesting because for myself as an only child, and I know you have siblings, um, for me, what radio did, it was that that ongoing companion, that company. It, it was something that always kept my attention and allowed for me to either escape my current reality, uh, but it could certainly allow for me to shut out the outside world. And, you know, I could put my headphones on, I could shut myself in my room, and that became a little world, uh, you know, in and of itself. You know, for you, is that what radio provided for you as well? Yeah, that's definitely um, that's definitely one area. I remember uh, doing what a lot of kids uh, like my like me did. I, I'd be in my room by myself when you know I could get away from the family, and I'd be going through all kinds of little trippy fantasy um, play acting things. But in the middle of the night, I would wake up and flip on. In those days, Fred, we had little tiny transistor radios. We didn't have headphones, but you just cram this radio under your pillow or stick it in, against your ear. And I, I would wake up and listen to. Uh, radio overnight. Um, I had my radio with me everywhere. You know, when I did a lot of lawn chops, you know, when you're a kid, you're mowing lawns and stuff. I was out with my stupid radio. I was telling people of a story, in fact. The first time I ever heard Wilson Pickett's in the midnight hour, I was mowing the lawn. And I think that was the first time I ever stopped mowing the lawn or doing anything and started dancing. And I remember hearing that on uh, KHJ Radio in Los Angeles. Uh, so that was the that was the portal for me to everything was the radio and that was my comfort and uh, I can't believe that I stayed up late many nights and I didn't feel it the next day I guess that's youth but I didn't it didn't seem like I hadn't slept you know I'd be awake for two or three hours in the middle of the night listening to the radio and then have to get up and go to school and for that I would imagine that you know sparked whatever you know creative juices you might have had internally now over the course of your you know growth and maturation into you know adolescence and then early adulthood and adulthood um, because your father, if I'm not mistaken, was military in Canada, correct? And your brother Dara was military as well in America? Well, well, partially. I mean, my dad was in the Canadian Army in the Second World War, but then he, you know, left um, and became a civilian. So when we came to California, he was a salesman, and that was his uh, pretty much his profession for the rest of his life, uh, selling for different companies. My brother, the same thing. He went into the U.S. Navy for... Uh, for four to six years, I think, um, and was in in theater in Vietnam, and uh, then came home and, and left and uh, got on with his life. So those two guys, the, the everybody in my family, I think every man in my family has been in the military except me. Okay. I, yeah. And that and that's actually what I was kind of working towards because you know for yourself it was such a deviation from what the other men in the family had done. Were your, you know, your wants and desires of being in entertainment or wanting to entertain or be in radio, was that something that was supported by your family or was it something you kept hidden or was it discouraged? It wasn't discouraged. I think it was looked at as kind of a kooky thing. Okay. Um, in those days, if you wanted to be an actor or a performer, no one looked at it as a, a, a potentially lucrative profession. Today, you know, any parent would say, wow, if you can do that, that'd be great. You know, but in those days, you were, it was considered kind of flaky. Like maybe you were sort of a bohemian. Maybe you weren't <laughs> serious about your life or making money, you know, and, and that kind of thing. So 
confided in my parents that I wanted to do radio, but I didn't hide it from them either. I just went about uh, my life. You know, I, my, my home was not a very tranquil home. It, we came from a very, uh, you know, my, my parents fought and uh, eventually divorced, and we, we had a, we, you know, we had a, a, a split family, and uh, so I didn't share a whole lot with a lot of those people because um, I'm not so sure they even were interested, to be honest with you. Right, right. And also, sometimes it's tough because... The you know radio was your sanctuary, and sometimes right. to let somebody into that, um, you know, not only shows the vulnerability of yourself, but then you worry about whatever criticism or judgment and and what could potentially come with that. And so for that time, while your parents were going through that divorce, did you find yourself clinging to radio even more with that being a passion of yours? You know, I did. Um, I used to ride my bicycle over to. Uh uh, here in uh, California, you know, we have these spread out suburbs around Los Angeles, but uh, the Huntington Sheraton Hotel was in Pasadena, like one town over from where I grew up. So I used to ride my bike over there and I would watch the disc jockeys work. And I saw Gypsy Kaysen work in and I saw um, the cats that were, that were big here in L.A., Emperor Hudson, who was a morning disc jockey, who gave me a sense of theater of the mind because he would do a lot of crazy, um, he, he assumed a persona as being the emperor. And uh, he did it so well that when I remember walking into the station that day and looking through the, the double pane glass, it was just a guy in his bedroom slippers sitting there at a big electronic board, you know. And I, I, I was actually surprised. I thought the guy was going to have a crown on it, would be sitting in a throne. So uh, that that was uh, that was yes, definitely an escape from all that mayhem. Because then I would, you know, I remember riding my bicycle home during those days. Uh, my father was had moved out, and. Um, it was a pretty dark uh, period for my family. But fortunately, when you're young, man, you know, the world is your oyster. You know, you just see beyond all that stuff. Um, and, and I was just a kid. And uh, while that was not a happy time in our house, I could see beyond all that. And I, and I began to, you know, see a, big, big, a much bigger world out there. Absolutely. And so for yourself, what was that first step that took you in the direction of radio? What was your first opportunity uh, that you were able to receive? Well, I had left home when I was uh, just out of high school, and I went down to Orlando, Florida, because a friend of mine's dad had opened up a concrete construction company down there, and he wanted laborers for the summer, and I said, that sounds, sounds good to me. You know, uh, No matter where you live as a young person, you want to get the hell out of there and go someplace else. <laughs> you, know, you, you may be in New York City, but you want to go and see something else. So right. we went down to Orlando. I worked as a, con- a construction laborer, and one of the guys had a brother-in-law who was a local disc jockey. The guy's name was Bill Barber. And Billy was over to the house one night, and he's talking about his life as a disc jockey. And, and uh, he says, man, I wish I was doing what you guys did. You guys are in construction? Yeah. Wow, you get to get up in the morning and watch the sunrise. And my <laughs> that thing's burning through your eyeballs at 6 a.m., it's not that much fun. So, <laughs> no, it's not so majestic at that time. No, no, but... <laughs> so I said to him, well, God, what do you do, man? And how do you do that? He said, well, you know, what you do, man, is you make yourself a tape of you reading some commercials and just send it around to the stations. He said, do, do two or three or four different kinds of commercials and um, do that. So I said, cool. And at the same time, I don't know how I got hooked into this, but there was a, a, an old-time uh, correspondence school called the Columbia School of Broadcasting. And I sent them my little $20, and they sent me back tape critiques of, of my, um, my 
Well, actually, I, I'm sorry, that didn't happen until after I got into radio. Um, before radio, yeah, I made these little tapes. I took them around to different stations, and I got a call from a, a small suburban station in Orlando in Winter Park, Florida, WBJW. And I met uh, Jerry Peterson, their general manager, their uh, PD, and um, I got hired. I got hired to do the overnight show. And how? Um, I'm sorry. How were those early takes? The first time you pressed record and and you know spoke on the microphone, and then eventually heard that playback. How was that experience for you after so many years of listening? You mean uh, the first time I was on the air? The first time I recorded a commercial? When you recorded a commercial? Oh, when I was doing that on the, um, I was reading. I would find a newspaper ad, gotcha. and I would reword it. And so I'm reading. Um, I was had a pretty confident sense of my own voice. Um, so long as I could hide behind, you know, um, the anonymity of a microphone. So that was not that hard um, because you did it and you took it out there and either people liked it or they didn't like it. And, and I'm sorry to confuse you, Fred, but it seems to me that during this period, before I got into radio and after, I was talking to these guys at Columbia School of Broadcasting because I think those are the guys that turned me on to this job opening in, in Winter Park. Because um, you would send your little tapes in and they'd say, well, that's very good. But Phil, what you should do is this and that. And uh, and remember to pronounce. I remember I was big on pronunciation because I thought to be a great announcer, you had to know how words were pronounced properly. So I bought this gigantic book called the NBC Guide to Pronunciation. So the National Broadcasting Company's Guide to Pronunciation. And they had every word in the English language and how it was supposed to be said. <laughs> and uh, so I, I have to thank them for teaching me how to say the letter W. Because wow. W is a tough, you know, when I, back east, most of the cats on the radio back then were going to say W because they couldn't say it. Right. So uh, I was really proud of that. So those are the little victories, you know. You know how to say W. <laughs> <laughs> these, are, these are the small things in life that we take uh, comfort in. Absolutely. <laughs> if, if, if only there was a way to put that ribbon on the refrigerator of knowing how to pronounce, you know, W and, you know, say, wow, yeah. gee, look, look at what I was able to accomplish today. I mean, you know, and, and for the sake of time, you know, I, I don't mean to, to press the fast forward button in regards to your career in radio. But, you know, for the fact that you were able to then see these different cities with the different stations in which you worked, um, what would it be that would send you from city to city? Was it mere opening or opportunity? What what was it that allowed for you to branch out to so many different cities? Well, I wanted, I wanted to get better, and I wanted to work around people that were better. I, want, I, I was in Orlando, and that was fine, but I realized that there was a bigger world out there, and I, I, I wanted to work around guys that, I, that would make me better. And so uh, in those days, we had a, a journal called Radio and Records. I don't know if they still have it, but that was pretty much the journal in broadcasting. And it had job openings, and you'd always look at the job openings. There was one in New Orleans, WNOEFM, and I got the job. I, I, I applied, and I went to New Orleans. And it was my first sort of, you know, quote-unquote big city. I remember driving into the quarter at 11 o'clock at night going, this is awesome, you know, this is awesome. Right. There's this buildings, you know, look at this skyscrapers. And, and I'm down there in, in my little hotel, and and I wanted to get better than that. I wanted to move on, and, and I got to get in Miami. So I, my ultimate goal was to get to L.A. or New York because I knew that was the pinnacle. Mm. And I knew that you know, it was never about money for me. It was about working with the very best and being the very best. Okay. And then you got to, I, I don't know what I was thinking, maybe you got to go to really cool parties or something, or, 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 or just people would think you were great or whatever, but that's what drove me. Um, 
media so much that I wanted to know what those guys knew that were the really best ones that I ever heard. In those days, it was Loman and Barkley, or it was Clavin and Fanner, these cats, these old school guys that were so brilliant. And then there were guys coming up with me at the same time, Steve Dahl and uh, Howard Stern. So you wanted to get on an equal footing with them. Mm-hmm. And you want to know what they knew and how, how are they doing it. And, and that's kind of what pushed me along, you know, by sending out my tapes and resumes to these different cities until I got to L.A. And then, then you begin a whole other thing. You start moving into other areas of interest and other areas that are difficult, you know. Right. Now, when, every time you would go to a new city, I mean, you're, you're basically having to not necessarily recreate yourself, but you're having to ingratiate yourself with the, the listening audience. Um, right. and, and first impressions are always just that, and it's hard to take back a bad first impression. But how would you go about each scenario, you know, with each city you would, you know, move into of, of just trying to find ways to to either captivate the audience, bring the audience to you or maintain the audience that was already existing without rubbing people the wrong way or turning them off? Well, Fred, you are a much more scientific guy than me. Because if, if I didn't think of any of those things, gotcha. <laughs> so, Which is probably why you're successful at it. <laughs> I, I might have, I might have had a much more successful career sooner had I been uh, thinking of these things. But I was a disc jockey. I was not doing what uh, you you know me from and what our BSPs know. I was spinning records, and so yeah, this was the '70s. Um, so I was trying to sound cool, you know, and mm-hmm. I was trying to sound like I knew the music. And I always had stories about the music. I knew all, all about the bands. I loved the different bands. And, um, and you know, when you talked about, uh, generally, at any station you worked at was in some sort of a co-promotion with a promoter in town. So the Eagles are coming to town, or Pink Floyd's coming to town, or somebody, you know. And I would just try to know the uh, places in town that people went. Like when I went to New Orleans, the French Quarter, uh, we worked in the Quarter, so that was easy enough. And every night it was a party down there. So, um, you know, I talked about things that were happening in the quarter, but then I, you know, get to the music because it was always about the music and anybody that busted out and did personality had more guts than me. You know, I just wanted to hold on to my job and, and, you know, because I figured in those days, if you did what the boss told you to do, you would be a smashing, roaring success. Mm. And I only found out later that that's not necessarily the case, but when I went to Miami, I lived in Fort Lauderdale, and so I talked about things on the beach there. I loved Miami. Um, I just loved it. I still do. Um, it was sunshine. It was all that turquoise water, and it was good rock and roll. And um, I went to a lot of shows down there. And um, so e- each town, I suppose, you know, you take to it differently. I loved Miami. I loved L.A. and San Diego. I wasn't too nuts about New Orleans, but it was okay because I, I-, I got out of New Orleans just ahead of I left New Orleans to go to Miami, but I found out that the DEA had been, uh, what's the word, you know, surveilling right. the radio station. And it turned out they were dealing coke. There were two stations, an AM and an FM, and the guys in the AM were dealing coke out of the radio station. And <laughs> drug enforcement in New Orleans Vice was across the street in a warehouse. So that when I left and went to Miami, the general manager of New Orleans, in New Orleans, the big tall tall, big tall guy, imagine Colonel Sanders at six foot six, he looks at me and says, now Phil, I hope, uh, I say, I hope all this drug stuff isn't what drove you out of this town. I said, no, no, sir, I just, you know, Miami, it sounds like a really good gig. Okay, I just want to make sure. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I mean, how else are they going to be able to afford their golden throne and crowns that they would wear as they were on the radio? Then, then of course, the you know selling of narcotics, of course. So, <laughs> so it's funny though. Of all places to escape drugs from, you go to Miami. Yeah, and, and what's really funny, uh, Fred, is the day, the, the year that I worked in Miami, 1978, 79, was a, was a, uh, is well known to any FBI agent because they had a, they had a massive shootout in a parking, in a, in a, in a shopping center down there with some uh, drug cartel guys. Right. That really marked Miami for the next 10, maybe 15, 20 years as a drug city. Nobody ever thought of it that way. It was, when I was in Miami in the 70s, they had the Miami Dolphins, and the rest of it was just sort of this chilled out, Old people are dying, and there ain't too many other people moving here. But whatever. Um, so it was it was uh, like that. And, uh, well, yeah, because you had the the cocaine cowboys, and then the rise of Miami Hurricane football, which all yeah. seemed to kind of coincide and collide at about the same time. Yeah, but that's true. But I, I was only there for. I didn't see the hurricanes. I saw the dolphins, and of course, the dolphins were everything in Miami in those days. And uh, went to see a lot of those games. Um, uh, the, the family that I worked for down there were the greatest people, the, Mickey and Jackie Milner. These two people were like 75 years of age, but young as hell, man. Um, Jackie would walk around in her little hat, and, her, and she went out and sold the advertising. They had a rock station. They owned this rock and roll station in Fort Lauderdale, Florida that was very successful. Uh, WSHE in those days was, was pretty much a, a, a heritage station for rock and roll. And they were the coolest people, man. I mean, here's Gino there with his big mutton chop sideburns. The dude's like going on 80 and Jackie <laughs> popping in and out. And we had a ball. And um, I really had a, had a great time with those guys. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I could mention a million different. We would have interviews there. Uh, Alice Cooper showed up one day mm-hmm. for an interview. And every time we had an artist in, we had the Brothers Johnson come in. And every time we had people come in, we'd walk outside to say goodbye. And there'd be a crowd of 200, 300 kids that had gathered in the parking lot because they listened to the interview and they wanted to come see these artists. Right. Um, so that, these are those little memories that I have of, of these places that, um, you know, that I loved. But, uh, yeah. And so for yourself, as you're getting these experiences and seeing these shows and interviewing these artists... Is this what you envisioned to now go back as to when you were a kid and first kind of sparked that interest of being on the radio and now you're in this lifestyle and seeing it firsthand? Was it what you had expected and more? It, it was it was okay, but I wanted I wanted more. It was I found myself um, being in service to the music business. Gotcha. Um, and and I, I don't want to sound like an ego case, but I guess I am. I always thought that I, I'm just as entertaining as any of these cats that I'm playing on records. So I always found myself not quite, I was a fish out of water, man. I was not quite the, the DJ that the record companies wanted. You know, I was a guy that was a little off. I didn't particularly like the new Van Halen record. I didn't particularly <laughs> give a shit about what the Stones were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was, I wanted something more, man. I wanted to start commenting on all of this, you know, and I wanted to start, you know, doing my thing. And um, You felt stifled in a way. I felt stifled, even though there I was. In a top 20 market at the time, Miami, on my way to the second largest market in the country, Los Angeles, doing all the right things, making all the right moves, saying hi to all the right people, smiling at all the right people, shaking all the right hands, and being a good little boy, and moving along, you know? Right. I gotta tell you, man, this is where you begin to learn that to be yourself, to be truly successful, 
as much as you want to love people and you want them to love you back, you have to begin to break some rules. Uh, not that you want to, but you find that you're, it, it's, it's unavoidable. Right, right. Because as a creator, naturally, the only thing that's going to satisfy that craving to create is to just do that. And for whatever ideas you started to develop at that point in time, which I would love to dive into right now, you know, as far as you wanting to add that commentary and not necessarily gravitating towards the most popular of the bands, but also kind of digging some music that was a little bit more off the beaten path or bands that were maybe a little bit lesser known. Uh, when did that, you know, how did you start trying to formulate a way in which you could commentate? Well, I was working morning drive. I got to as high a level as you can in rock radio. I was working morning drive at a brand new format called Classic Rock, which today is, I suppose it still exists, but it was a hot format for about 10 years. And I was um, a morning drive guy at KLSX Los Angeles. And I was trying to do personality, but it wasn't working out too good. I was I, I, I didn't know what was topical. I tried too hard to do this. I, my jokes weren't funny. And I worked for a guy, uh, our program director at the time, who will remain nameless because I probably ripped the guy too much uh, in the past. He, he His thing was shut up and play the music. Uh-huh. Shut up and play the music. You know, when you got a guy like that, you know that you're you know you're swimming upstream here, man. It's just not going to happen. So you kind of know where you stand on in the pecking yeah. order. Pretty much, man. And I got canned. Mm. I got fired from the morning show, but they kept me on as a weekend disc jockey, and I guess I didn't have enough pride, <laughs> pride or whatever. I took the job, man. Uh, we so hate you. Don't do Monday through Friday. But hey, we got something for Saturday and Sunday if you're interested. Yeah, and not only that, it was overnight. It was overnight on Saturday and <laughs> Sunday. And I took the gig, man. So, But that's when I started doing voices. And what happened? They said to me, what are you doing, man? Don't, don't, don't do that. You know, they're, they're grimacing. They're looking at you like you're weird. It's all very uncomfortable for them, right? Right. And yet, and yet I, I was cracking myself up. And, you know, that's the bottom line, man. If you're, if you're sane, that is, and you make yourself laugh, you think you, you, you know, you're onto something. Right. Um, at least you're onto something that you enjoy. So I finally got bounced from that gig. And that was in the late 80s, early 90s. And there I was. And I, that's when I made the decision. I, my girlfriend at the time lived in Portland, Oregon. And because that's the way it was in radio, you know, you have a chick in this town and then, you know, she, you move, she moves. So you're always flying someplace to see somebody. Right. And I decided to take the train up to Portland. And I was on the coast of California looking out a window at the setting sun. And I told myself at that moment, I remember where I was, I remember what I was doing. And I told myself that no matter what it took, no matter where I had to go, no matter what I had to suffer through, I was going to be the best artist that I could possibly be. I was going to be Phil Henry. Mm. That was the beginning. Um, I got up to Portland and we hung out. I came home and I got a job doing weekends at AFI Radio, which is a, a big talk station in Los Angeles. And not really knowing what I was doing, I had that job for about a year. I was interviewing political people and uh, kind of pushing down that instinct that I had to be the the guy, you know, um, and actually I got I got to jump forward for it. I'm sorry. No, of when, course. when I was on that train, it was after the KFI gig. Okay. So I went home and now I remember I went home, I made a tape. I sent it to everybody. I sent this tape to small towns, big towns. And I finally got hired here at a little tiny station in Ventura, California called KVEN. And I went up there in August of 1990 and that began the journey of doing anything I could think of 
anything I could think of to push the boundaries of this medium as far as I could. I started the show one day standing on my head. I started doing these Socratic conversations with myself. I started doing characters on the phone. I started doing characters on the... I, I, anything I could think to do that was weird and out there and that I just felt like doing, I did. And thank God, you know, I worked for a guy, Rich Delano, who let me do it. Right. And how did you know it was catching on? Besides just cracking yourself up in the studio, what was the feedback? Because we all think we're all great in our own mind. But when did you start hearing the feedback like, oh, man, I might be on to something here? You got feedback on the street. You got it from people in the station. You started to meet people. God, that show you that was really funny. That was really funny. That was really funny. You started to, you, you got the sense now, you know, hey, who's this guy you got on your station there, Dave? Dave Lowe was our GM. That does the funny voices and the people call in and talk. Oh, that's, you know, this kind of a thing. Um, you meet the salespeople, the very first people, if you work in the radio business. Uh, salespeople are the very first people that you talk to who have a feel for the street and for the listenership. And when the salespeople come up to you and say, you got a really funny show, man. You know, we got to get you out to do some personal appearances, this kind of thing. Then you know that you're, you know, you're cooking a little bit. And, um... So that, that uh, and then of course when I started to do the voices and they were getting phone calls, then I knew I had an entirely unique product that nobody else was doing. And that's when I settled into the idea that God, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're good at this film. Maybe you can, uh, maybe you can make some noise. Maybe, you know, you know, this is who you were supposed to be. This is the guy, as, as weird as it is, is, this is the guy you gotta be. And so at what point in time are the, you know, the managers and the quote unquote powers that be starting to relent to see, okay, we actually have something now with the callers coming in and some are riled up. Well, actually, many of them riled up because that was, you know, the original format. Um, You know, not only did, you know, when did the managers start to relent, but also for you, when did you decide, okay? I'm going to start to push the envelope a little bit more with some of the topics and some of the characters I'll begin to create. Um, how did you go about beginning that, you know, overall master plan? A lot of it is, is, is improvisation, you know. Um, first of all, the, the managers, quote unquote, relent when the, when the program director comes to them, who was Rich Galano, he says to them, hey, let him do his thing, you know, because they're probably screaming at him like, we're getting phone calls, he did this bit and this bit and that bit, and people are angry that they're being fooled by the fake Iraqi voice and all this stuff. <laughs> Uh, and, and Rich would say, you don't understand, you know, uh, this is art, you know, this is funny. I mean, this is theater of the mind, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, so there was that intercession on the part of the programmer. And then in terms of the actual material, you're, you're improvising, man. Um, you know, you, you need to uh, kind of remember, Fred, Ventura's a small market. In those days, there were 600,000 people at Metro, um, even though we're, you know, 40, 50 miles from the L.A. Uh, uh, city center. It was still, Ventura County is different, man. It's not Orange County. It's, it's Ventura County. You know, it's a rural area. And uh, so if we got a lot of calls on the build-up to the Gulf War. But after the Gulf War ended, the calls dropped off. So I might be there doing a character voice and not getting any calls. Um, or maybe one or two, because all 600,000 people, it seems, in Ventura knows that it's Phil doing a voice. But still, mm-hmm. you're trying things. And when you improvise, I'll give an example. Some guy called the show one day, and uh, he's like, yeah, so he had this kind of hillbilly voice, and he's just saying this and that, and I just think that all these uh, protesters ought to just shut up, click, hangs up. Well, I don't know what caused me to do this, 
but I, I launched into this female voice. So I said, let's take another call, hello? Yes, Phil, hi. Um, that man you just had on, he was devastating. Do you have his phone number? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I, uh, that's when Margaret, this character I do named Margaret, was created. Right. Because uh, she thought that this guy with the hillbilly voice was just the most devastating guy in the world. She wanted to meet him. And then I came up with another character named Ed Woosney, who'd been a, uh, who'd been a hostage in Iraq and was tortured. And I said, how were you tortured? He said, they didn't honor my American Express limit, you know, <laughs> that to an American that would be torture. So right. all of these characters are, uh, 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 you know, as they say, necessities, the mother of invention. They came about because I needed to talk about something and I needed to do something and I needed to have something to present. And my instinct was to go into character, was to create these different people. An interesting part of it was, you know, we may not know these people, but we know these people in regards to the, you know, the, the satirical way, but also in the way that, you know, these individuals will really feel this way. And so for yourself, this was what I, what I gravitated towards and what I first picked up on about the show was this was an honest commentary. This was your take on these individuals without saying, you know, obviously this predates Twitter and, and social media of saying these people you know, whomever I may encounter, this may annoy me, that may annoy me, but instead, you almost took on the persona to kind of shine the light on it and magnify it. Um, well, that's, that's the ultimate, that's the essence of satire. The essence of satire is to, is to make a target of uh, these um, unsavory things in life and make them funny. And um, Gary Trudeau said that um, satire is comedy with an opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's true, uh, and, and it's, it's satire scary. People, not everybody thinks it's funny, you know. Not everyone. Thinks, right. Anybody that loves Donald Trump, man, they sure as hell don't like the, the gags that are being done at his expense. But so, so, I, and I love that. I, I, I think I found that out about myself uh, in Ventura. I love satire. I love the biting, sharp nature of it. I didn't want to piss anybody off. Right. I did not want to. I didn't want to make waves. I wanted to be funny. And the way to be funny for me was to hey, look at that guy over there. Look at look at what he's doing. Let's let's mimic him and this kind of thing. Um, somebody said to me one day, they said, "So you you get up in the morning trying to piss people off, right?" I said, "Hell no, man. Nobody that does comedy tries to piss anybody off. <laughs> no one. Yeah. No one gets out of bed in the morning saying, I think I'm going to just really tear it up today.' No, man. You you get out of bed in the morning wanting to be the funniest guy you could be, and and frankly, you want to just enjoy your job." But right. you cannot help but upset people when you're being honest and when you're really on target with what you're doing. Yeah, it's going to piss some people off. And so for yourself, I mean, you know, as we now progress further, I mean, I mean, you see the change of politics has now become popular culture. I mean, everything seems to kind of just coagulate. There is no differentiation of the different arenas in which it felt people would consume entertainment. It all kind of blended together. And so for yourself, you know, before it was rock music, what have you, now you kind of bringing it all together. How were you able to encompass everyday life in your show? Well, since it was a character-driven show, since it was, you know, it was theater is what I was doing. So uh, in theater, you have characters. So you naturally, as you said, Fred, very, very rightly, you naturally see the world around you and you bring it in. So if I'm on the air, and I, and I left Ventura and I went to Atlanta, and I happened to arrive in Atlanta on the very night 
that the riots broke out uh, following the acquittal of those L.A. cops in the mm-hmm. Rodney King um, incident. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to be funny in the middle of that? Right. Well, I went on the air as a German, and I was talking about, you know, how the police are effective, and Atlanta is, if nothing, it, it's called the Black Mecca. Oh, yeah. Uh, so a lot of African-American listeners who <laughs> never heard my ass before in their lives <laughs> are, listening to, are listening to some Gestapo-sounding dude talking about, you know, the effectiveness of police control and all this stuff. And uh, one of the great things about doing the show that I did was that you could always make a splash. You didn't say to yourself, I think I'll make a splash. Just whatever you did, you're going to make a splash. And that, that got enough people pissed off. Then it also got people saying, well, wait a minute, you don't understand. That cat does those voices. Mm-hmm. And you automatically make a fan. You have a guy who hates your guts, but as soon as he finds out that you were doing a voice, yeah. he loves you. Yeah, because it's brilliant. You now appreciate the genius of it as opposed to just focus on what's being said. And, and, and so for me, that was something that I always gravitated towards in regards to that. And I'm sure many others, which I know for a fact, many others. And so at what point in time, you know, did the support from the hires up start to decline and you found yourself wanting to, I don't know, create more or what have you? Well, I mean, I, I, um, I had I had made quite a rise from Ventura all the way to Los Angeles in the span of about six years, seven years, until I was finally syndicated nationally by Clear Channel in 1999, and and then became the science, and all this science started to jump in, all of this research, all of these marketing, you know, well now, uh, how many stations, and what, are they carrying you live, or are they carrying you, and I began to get um, buried in a lot of this stuff, uh, we needed to have live stations, not delayed broadcast. And what do we tell the advertisers? And how do they know you're not doing a character voice and making fun? All this good stuff. And uh, in the meantime, I was—I had gotten married. Um, my responsibilities were magnified. Um, and one of the things about being successful is you suddenly have nine million more bills you got to pay that you never mm-hmm. thought you needed to pay in the first place. And then you're asking yourself, why the hell am I having to pay these now? You know, but yeah. that happened. Um, we reached a point at, with our nationally syndicated show of, I think, this, the company, Clear Channel, said, well, we've reached saturation with Phil. How, how many more stations can we get? And Because I would say to the affiliate guys, we need more stations. And what's up with the advertisers? You know, why aren't we getting more advertisers on board? And I began to realize that, in my opinion, in just my humble opinion, what I was doing was not really what radio was capable of promoting. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a medium, Fred, that grew out of the desperation times after World War II when television took over. And either radio was going to survive or it was going to go under. Mm-hmm. And they came up with the disc jockey format, and they came up with the sales uh, model. And everything in radio is money. Money, 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 money. Not that it isn't money in other businesses, but in, if you're chasing money, you're not chasing the art necessarily. Right. So I realized that um, my future lay in something even more theatrical. So I, I, I realized that the, the, whatever the infrastructure was in radio, it could only support what I was doing so far, and it, wasn't, it, it couldn't do it any further. They were only willing to promote you so much. They were only willing to affiliate you so much. And if it got into um, a situation where it was going to be more long-term, where they had to spend more money than they wanted to, naturally, you know, you're, they're, they're just not going to see it as a, a cost-effective. So as popular as the show was, uh, as, as culty as the show was, um, it was not 
a, it was not a, a, even though I loved radio and I thought it was the ultimate radio show it was not a show that radio could support right um, so I decided at that point that I would leave and pursue what I could in the uh, field of acting because I, I'd done a TV show and got there were people in Hollywood that wanted to cast me in different things so they wanted to at least see me in front of a casting agent and they wanted to uh, and I thought well hell that's what I've been doing um, I've, been, I've been an actor all these years so I think it's a natural move for me. And so, for you, oh, I'm sorry, I apologize. In, in regards to that transition into acting, what growing pains did you have in in, in those instances? Oh, I mean, I, I, I just began a period of many years where I made every bad decision you could make. But essentially, I did everything that you did, and I had a lot. Uh, I had a lot of goodwill. So, uh, the first five jobs I auditioned for, I got. Okay. And they were, um, one was a recurring character on the unit. There were some pilots and stuff like that. And then uh, we did one pilot we thought was going to get picked up. So the first year there was pretty good. But, you know, I wasn't making the kind of money I was making in radio. And I felt like I needed to uh, jump back into the radio game. And I knew that there was a syndicator up in Oregon that uh, would, would probably like to have my show. I didn't want to do comedy. I wanted to do political commentary that was sort of colored by comedy. So what I essentially did is I, I jumped back into radio while I was still pursuing this, uh, the, the, the acting career, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. and that was not a good decision because it was, uh, it was even worse than uh, my final experience at Clear Channel. I, I'm afraid the story in terms of radio gets really sorted here, Fred. Uh, <laughs> you know, no, it's fine. It's, I, a, it's a, a period of where I was trying to do a, a more of a political commentary show with humor. It really sucked. And by 2009, 2010, I went back to doing the character intensive show. And that show, in that period of time, got re-energized and got, and got, got a lot of people listening. But unfortunately, again, you've got to have live broadcast. You can't do delayed broadcast. We had affiliate. We had all the same challenges we had at Clear Channel. So... What was when my contract ran out in 2013 with the syndicator in Medford, Oregon, I said, I'm going to get out of radio and get into digital. I could see what was happening. All these websites were popping up. Internet streaming was happening. Podcasts were happening huge. Um, cats that, uh, uh, comedians that you know, nobody ever heard of were suddenly getting uh, tens of thousands of downloads for their podcast cats like Mark Maron, you know, and Adam Kroll, all these guys. Right. I said, this is where it's at. And not only that, I can own my own company. I can own my own material. I can market it any way I want. I can do any damn thing I want. And uh, I decided that was the way to do it for Phil Henry. Absolutely. Uh, what was your lowest moment in terrestrial radio? Uh, when I, I my, my lowest moment, thank you for asking that. This just took, took me back to hell. I apologize. Uh, yeah. no, no, it's okay. Uh, I'm kidding, but I'm, well, I'm not kidding. But <laughs> my lowest moment was I had signed a three-year deal with this company in Oregon, so that was 2010. It was three years was up, and I got a letter from them. <clears throat> now, keep in mind, I hated this company. I hated this company. They didn't know how to do anything. They couldn't hire a screener. They couldn't sell. They couldn't affiliate. And I got a letter from them saying. We're picking up your option for another three years. <laughs> I got so angry that my ex-wife, Maria, who I, I'm still friendly with, she called me up and she said, I- I'm worried about you. I said, what's wrong? She said, I think we need to, I think you need to go, I think you need to be hospitalized. <laughs> oh, wow. 
That's... You want to put me in a nut house, man. <laughs> well, at least she gave you the courtesy of calling because not everybody yeah. gets that heads up call first. She said, I think you have to be hospitalized. I, because I was probably on, a, on, on my way to a stroke or something. I was so, so, so angry. I called up the owner of the company. I got him on a cell phone. I told him, I don't want to work for you. I don't, I don't like you. you know, I, I tried to insult him. I mean, why would a guy pick up the option of some dude who hates his guts and doesn't right. want to work for him? Unless they yeah. do it just to spite you. Yeah, that's exactly why. That is exactly what he did. why he did it. Because he basically wanted to just, he wanted to destroy my show. And I, I'm sorry I have to say that, but that there's no other way to explain it. That was it. That was the lowest. And, I, and, and at some point, Fred, what you do is you, and you know this, you stop screaming and yelling. You take a deep breath. You go, I can't do anything about this. I just have to keep pushing on. Right. Uh, and that's what I did. That's what I did for the next three years. I tried to make the very best I could out of the situation. And when I was finally free of that company, I... Uh, I made the decision then. I said, "I gotta, I gotta get out of this thing, man." Because it's a, you know, radio at that point uh, was competing with the internet. At that point, radio was, uh, you know, really having a hard time. It was struggling against all this other uh, media that was happening, and um, they weren't paying. We were on our way into a massive, uh, as you know, we just come out of a massive recession. We were in a massive recession at the time. Right. So all the bread was, was you, you heard about guys who were getting their salaries cut back 75%, you know, yeah. uh, it was insane. So, um, so, well, I got to do the digital. I know I can make a living with that. And I did, we did a subscription model. That's when we, when we went ahead and uh, bought the company or got the company away from Clear Channel and uh, went uh, to this digital model. And it was hard and it still is, you know, because like owning, or like they say, owning a restaurant, you're mopping out the toilet and going and cooking the hamburgers, which is really kind of a disgusting transition now that I think about it. But, but very true if you actually watch the cook go <laughs> to the bathroom. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you, know, you are, man. You're worried about stuff like, hey, man, how come the animation isn't rotating on the website? And, oh, yeah, I got to have a show to do for today. And uh, where you know, and then copyright infringement. You got a lawyer you're paying five grand a month to to make sure that people aren't stealing your stuff or posting it illegal at this, that, something else. And so that's the world that I jumped into. But that's the world I've been in for the last whatever the hell it's been five, six years. Yeah. And um, and so for yourself, I'm sorry. For did you own the Phil Henry show with all those uh, years of it being on I, radio? Did you own the rights to it? Yeah, as of as of the fall of two thousand six, essentially the copyright was passed over to me by Clear Channel. Gotcha. Uh, Craig, those guys gave me the rights to my show, and um, that, that's a beautiful thing. And in, in, the, in the in the intervening years, I've talked to younger guys in the business, and I felt the first thing you need to do, man, is get the rights to your material. Um, and I think everybody is is doing that now. Anybody that values what they do, and the companies don't own the companies don't know what to do with it. They yeah. own all that material. They don't know what to do with it, and so you might as well let the the artist himself have it. Nor will they actually care to actually nurture it and foster its growth and trying to make sure that it is as successful while staying to the pure essence of what you create it to be. Um, well, that's absolutely true. And I, look, and I, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to, you know, badmouth any any particular format. But when you look at what radio is today, talk, spoken word format or whatever the hell you want to call it, right. it's right wing radio and it's sports radio. So. 
all of the personality-driven stuff that we were looking forward to doing. When I worked with guys in Miami like Neil Rogers, when I worked with uh, really you know creative people, that's not happening anymore right. because it's too controversial. It scares away advertisers. And the right-wing model is good because it services the AM band where mostly old listeners reside. And sports radio is fantastic because it's controversy, but it's phony controversy. It's like you can have guys screaming and yelling about why the Green Bay Packers don't use this kicker as opposed to the other guy. And it sounds like you're talking about the most important issue in the world, and you're not. <laughs> right. It's an argument about football. So. Right. That's where that's where that went, you know. And so, as you made that transition to digital, I mean, you're also talking about the explosion of social media, which um, I would love to hear your initial impression of social media, and then also from the concept of once you make this transition, I mean, that's that's easy marketing. It's easy to blast it out to however many hundreds of thousands of of BSPs and and listeners that you have. To, to make them aware of your transition, but how did you initially feel about social media and where, if at all, has your opinion changed on it to this day? Social media is something that I never really understood, to be honest with you. I, uh, I, I didn't quite know how to use it. Um, it looked like a big playground, but I did see that there were other people using it to much greater effect. You know, For instance, Twitter, I saw there were guys with 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, followers so they knew what they were doing and I had to figure out what that was um, the first instinct is to, to, to get on there and just sort of pardon the expression but just jerk off and you know just say whatever it is that pops into your head and mm-hmm. do ridiculous things like a running commentary on a basketball game that takes up about 9,000 tweets and then <laughs> you, look at, you, know, you look at that six months later and you go what the hell was I doing there you know right Things like that. Um, only gradually do you does it dawn on you that this can become a far better if I use this thing as an effective way of of communicating my product. And that's when you start to think about it in terms of that. For me, it took about I would say it took maybe a year for me to really make the connection. As crazy as that sounds today, it's a no brainer. But back then, we were still thinking along the old. A lot in the old lines, and then somebody turned me on to Facebook. I'd been on MySpace, but MySpace was a place to pick up chicks. To be perfectly honest with you, you know, I I got hit on over there by female listeners of mine and stuff, and I think I got lost in that. But uh, that said, you never ventured over to uh, Black Planet. It's uh, African American equivalent, but I understand, man. No, no hard feelings on that. (laughs) Well, I mean, but you know, so I, I. and Facebook was the same thing. I was like, wow, this Facebook uh, is also a really good piece of infrastructure. And that's what it became. It became infrastructure for whatever you do, especially in media, as advertising. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result of that, uh, you began to get more scientific with it. You began to get a little bit smarter. You began to sculpt your messages in terms of what your show was. You began to learn how to upload videos, how to upload audio how to plug your show on a semi-regular basis. You found out about fan pages. Oh, wow, kills do that. Um, and you began to recognize how absolutely necessary it is. And, yeah. and then you realized what a godsend it is. I don't have to buy a billboard. I don't have to buy, an, I don't have to buy a, a full-page ad. I can just use this. And it reaches tens of thousands of people, potentially. 
It's a pretty revolutionary thing. In terms of marketing and advertising, it's the most revolutionary thing to come along since, since radio, since the invention of radio. Right. And I mean, for me, I mean, Twitter is almost my newspaper, if that yeah. makes sense. You know, <laughs> if I want to know what's going on in the world, I immediately go to Twitter, right or wrong. And I mean, I'm sure there's a vast majority of opinions in regards to that. But sometimes I, it's not that I take it in and it's gospel, but I just want to know what's up. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, you know, yeah. and 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 now I mean, pretty much breaking news or headline news is accompanied with a hashtag now. I know, and and well, as somebody so wisely said, news is now a product. It's not news; it's a product. If you think about it, there's this kind of news, but then there's that kind of news, right? And like that, what what was that line that lady said? Alternative facts. I mean, we're yeah. really into the weeds when we're saying the truth isn't really truth because there's another truth over here. And, um, so I, 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 I probably use Twitter more for opinion making and personally I'll go and I'll still rely on the old standbys like Reuters and AP and New York Times and Washington Post as much as, as much as some people think they're fake news. They got Pulitzer Prizes going for them so I figure I'm, I'm good. They're fairly reliable and credible, right? Yeah. And I mean, and it's like Denzel Washington said, you know, if you don't watch the news, you're uninformed. And if you do watch the news, you're misinformed. And so uh-huh. it's, it's it's such a, you know, a tricky thing to type, you know, to, to navigate. And, yeah. you know, it's interesting now because, you know, with terrestrial radio being where it is, and this isn't to bang on it, but now we have this straight to consumer product in regards to digital platforms. I mean, anybody can have a, a, a podcast. I'm, I'm living proof of that, <laughs> however you want to take that. But, um, you know, this is me cutting my teeth. You know, this is, you know, and listening to you and studying you and, and, you know, that's my education. This is my broadcast journalism. Now it's completely informal, but it is not as expensive as going to college for it. So, you know, do people reach out to you and, and, you know, for mentorship, for guidance in regards to navigating, you know, uh, entertainment, I can't even call it journalism because this is, it's, it's, it's so many different things. You wear so many different hats with your show and with your brand. Um, do you mentor many, many up and coming Post? Well, I, I really don't, um, only because I would never be able to give them any the time needed. Although I've dabbled, I've, I've there's, I, I've had, often had the idea of doing some kind of a a, a YouTube class for uh, creating characters and, and doing that kind of stuff. But um, you said something that uh, uh, that piqued my uh, 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 curiosity. You're talking about um, how I'm cutting teeth doing this, and it's almost like yeah. this is my well, family. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. To remember, um, Fred, you know, this is really truly an art form now. Um, movies are really truly an art form now. They, they weren't an art form in the 40s and the 50s. People would like to say they were, but as long as the tools are not available to everyone, it's not an art form. It's some elite thing that guys with money will give you the tools if you're good enough. Well, who are they, you know? Right. But today, it has become an art form. Now, having said that, you know, canvas and paint was available to everybody for hundreds and hundreds of years, but there was still only one Michelangelo, there's still only one Picasso, there's still only one, you know, Jackson Pollock. So, yeah, everybody has the paint and everybody has the canvas, but only there's only a few really great artists, and that's what you need to aspire to. Um, and anybody can do that if they have the talent for it. And I would simply say... I think you're pursuing what you're pursuing today because it's interesting to you. 
that's the most important bottom line. Right. And if you do what's interesting to you and what, what you love, what gives you, what gives you joy, you can't miss uh, at least speaking your truth. I had an acting teacher say to me one time, <laughs> he goes, you want to speak your truth? And I said, well, what if nobody wants to hear it? He goes, well, at least you spoke your truth. You know, so uh, you chuckle, but that's actually kind of comforting, to be honest with you, right? It absolutely is because that's the goal of life, man. That's the goal of life. What what do I have to give? What do I have to contribute? How can I? Okay, I'm I'm me, and I did my thing. But what can I put out there? Well, my truth, you know. And of course, it needs to be life supporting, not life destroying, because we react to we we react better to uh, creating life as opposed to destroying it. Mm -hmm. But um. I really personally don't think it's ever true that no one wants to hear it. I think it is true that maybe you've got a smaller audience, but that's the beauty of the digital age. You can have an audience, dude, of 100,000 people, which is nothing compared to what, you know, the traditional model is. But you can make a living with that. You can make a living on 100,000 followers or 50,000. You can actually uh, support yourself and speak your truth with a specific audience, with a, a targeted demographic. Right. Um, so I think in that way, this is really, it really is a, a massive thing that's happened. Um, but you still, you know, like I said, there's still only one Picasso. And, and as far as podcasting goes, or netcasting, or digital, or whatever, even though there's 85 billion people doing it, there can only be if, you know, the artists are the ones that rise to the top. Right. Right. And that's true. You know, there's one Michelangelo and there's like 50,000 Pete's neighborhood painters. And, I, yeah. you know, I'm just trying to rise above that group. If I can just those guys, stay. Those guys are making a living, you know, that's true. Pete's, Pete's making a living uh, painting a wall in the corner. Uh, some guy needs his. And there you, there you go. And, and if he's a happy man and he's doing what he's always wanted to do, I don't know how you can fault that. So, right. Absolutely, yeah. which I completely respect. Now, in regards to speaking your truth, and you know, we'll get out of here in just a little bit, as I know you need to get on with your day. But in speaking your truth, you know, obviously, over the course of you know seeing you know the transition to digital for yourself and the pre-show and some of the content that had been covered on the show, and even down to the to the bumper music of having rap music on there, you know, mm-hmm. knowing that at times that could turn certain listeners off and a certain demographic enough. Right. And, and I've seen the comment sections. I never partake, but you know, you see it because it's just good to me. It's crowdsourcing and it's it's good research. But for yourself, as the person who runs the operation. Um, how do you navigate what things you're going to, you know, stand firm on, dig your heels on, what certain things you're going to, you know, contour and alter? What's that? What's that process for you? Well, you know what you, you know what you're always going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, I know that I'm always going to be an actor. I know I'm always going to create characters. I know I'm always going to create this kind of theater. There's just no way around it. There may be some other little podcast I can do, straight commentary. Um, which some people seem to enjoy when I just start screaming and yelling about some certain shit. But when it comes to the bumper music, I always felt that it was important to stay connected to the culture. And the older you get, the harder it is. Um, And the best way that I found was to connect with music that was highly relevant. And to me, it was both metal and and hip-hop. Those are the two most relevant forms of music in America. So I listened to a lot of that stuff. And I used it as bumper music, yeah. Uh, because I have an older demographic, uh, 35 to 54, and probably primarily white people, because I come out of talk radio, 
Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, not only is it white, it's conservative. Um, because, so I have these conservatives who thought I was really funny and love listening to me, but now they listen to me playing hip-hop music and it isn't so cool anymore. Right. Um, rather than deal with their shit, I, uh, I backed off of the hip-hop because it wasn't, it wasn't really what my show needed to be about anyway. Mm-hmm. Although I listened to it in my own life, and I, every now and again I'll play, I'll play something. That's not what the show is. The show's a comedy show. It's, yeah. a, it's a satire. Um, it's a show about, quote-unquote, politics, small p. And uh, what's a good middle ground music? So I go and I find royalty-free surf music there. Yeah, <laughs> which I love. You know, Misery Slims yeah. and, you know. <laughs> and and I, I, You know, you go and it's free and nobody's going to jump my ass for it. And you know, I live at the beach anyway, so. Um, but I, um, I'm, I'm grateful uh, for hip-hop because I know artists like Drake. And I know artists like Kendrick Lamar. And I know all of these cats, you know, Kid Ink and everybody that I like. And um, I feel like I'm in America. You know, I feel like I'm plugged in a little bit. And I'm not just out here still listening to goddamn uh, Hendrix or Cream. You know? Right. <laughs> so. now, now, earlier you referenced that, you know, you made every mistake in the book when trying to transition to acting. What did you learn from those mistakes in which you made? Um, I, had, I had to be a far better craftsman than I was. Uh, acting is not just getting there and saying lines and acting. It's, it's being real in the moment. Um, it's bringing real, uh, real feeling to it, real emotion to it. So I had to become a better craftsman. So I re, I re, um, committed myself to training. Uh, took another acting class, especially a class in auditioning, and uh, also pointed myself in the direction of what I what I can do the best, and that's comic acting um, and improv. So those are the areas that I focus on. I tried doing some live shows. Um, I was doing a. Phil Hendry and Friends show at the Improv, Hollywood Improv, and uh, that's more of a stand, even though it says Hollywood Improv, it's more of a stand-up environment. I don't like to do stand-up comedy because it's joke writing, and I don't really write jokes. You know, I, I just stand there and say weird things. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, so, right. so I, I realized that that wasn't for me, so I kind of moved away from that, and I'm back now more toward uh, the study of and the pursuit of actual acting jobs, whether you be in front of a camera or on a stage. Um, and also making sure that you're always committing to educating yourself. So whether that's a class, whether it's just reading a book, whether it's just reading a play, uh, constantly educate yourself on, on uh, saying these words, but being being truthful when you say them. Absolutely. Now for your now, do you write? Are there scripts? Are there projects that you can you constantly find yourself working on? Uh, kind no, of I, I, I don't really write. Um, in the sense of writing movies and plays, no. Gotcha, gotcha. No. And um, I wish, but yeah, it's really funny because I always thought I was going to be a writer when I was a kid. I thought I, that, that was the job for me, man. I was going to be John Dos Passos. I was going to just, you know, get on board steamers and, and work as a merchant marine and write all these short stories like Jack London. And, nah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah like <laughs> well, now, you know, you know, and this is, can be our last point before we get out of here. Well, we'll probably try to end it on a happier note uh, because this is obviously a hot, hot issue right now in Hollywood. And being a man who is in entertainment, uh, I don't know if you would want to designate yourself of being in Hollywood per se. But 
being a man in entertainment, uh, being an older uh, white man, uh, it's almost it's 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 kind of like you have a target on your back, like I do as a black man in everyday life, <laughs> and trying to navigate certain minefields. So you know, with the explosion of the you know obviously the the Me Too movement, which at its core is something that is honest and pure, and I appreciate and respect. Um, I was nervous. I was biting my nails for you, Phil, because I was like, please don't let any stories about Phil Henry, <laughs> Phil Henry come out. So, hey, man, wherever you hid the bodies, you did a great job in New Orleans. In those uh, <laughs> you know, uh, dude, I, I look, I, I, I get it, man. I was raised by women. I'm a, my mother and my, my two sisters, that was my household after my father left. And I, as I've told people, um, you know, when I was an adolescent, I saw them. I watched what they went through. I watched what my sisters especially went through. The, uh, the angst of growing up, uh, the insecurity, um, the, the sort of the desperation I saw my mother go through when, when you know, my, my father wasn't there anymore. She had to somehow support us. You know, we didn't have any money. Um, it was only about two years ago I was sitting talking to my sister. I said, you know, I shoplifted because I was hungry. I, I, I thought I'd shoplifted because I thought I was just going to be a... Roger the Dodger and a Bobby Vaughn kind of daring, dashing rapscallion. No, I, I stole food because I was hungry. And she told me a story that broke my, my heart. She said that she stole a bag of groceries one day that she saw sitting on some steps because there wasn't any food in our house. I remember that, and um, I grew up probably more of a feminist than a lot of guys. Mm. Uh, I was a, a guy. And when you're a guy in the 60s and the 70s, in the 80s, the 90s, and today, you're operating on a certain, um, there's a matrix, there's a platform from whence we all spring. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, you know, you, you need to be strong and powerful, so a chick is really going to be attracted to that. We're told that women like men who are confident, and they like bad boys and all this good shit. So, my rule of thumb was always, if she says no, okay, I'm done. Yeah. He says to me, um... You know, I'm not interested. Okay, I'm done. And uh, if I'm being inappropriate, she says you're being inappropriate, then I stop that shit too. You know, the other day, not the other day, it was about two years ago, I was coming out of a table read, and one of the actresses was there. And she was standing in front of me with the car, and I think I made a crack about her ass. I made, I made a comment about her ass. Within 30 seconds, I realized what I'd done, and I said I apologized to her for it. I said, I'm really sorry. That was inappropriate of me. She goes, what'd you say? I said, this and that. She said, hell, I didn't even hear that. Wow. Um, but I, I, I'm not saying that that's going to happen every time, but I think you got to monitor what you're saying and how you're saying it. And you know what, man? When you're at work, you're at work. You're not there to hit on anybody or to uh, make a date or to expand your freaking uh, little black book or whatever. Um, and you just have to really believe somebody when they tell you, you know, piss off. I'm not interested in it or whatever. Um I feel confident that there's no body buried in place. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I know for a fact that, uh, you know, I've never had any trouble like that. I've never lost a job. I've never lost a, I, you know, but, you know, dude, I, I, you know, if there's somebody out there that I offended, I don't know, you know, Who, yeah. what man can say with absolute certainty that he didn't pick somebody off at one point or another. Right. That's what I that I always operated and, uh, as, as, as much as I can, I always operate on, on, the, on the basis of when she tells you to piss off, then piss off. If she tells you she's not interested, she's not interested. If she says no, goodbye, then it's no and goodbye. Right. And you'll never go wrong. Now, for your, does this still feel like work to you? 
I mean, you just had the issue with your master board, or <laughs> when yeah. I saw that BSPM, I'm sure that day yeah. felt like work. But but overall, oh you know, being your own boss now and, and financial freedom and, and doing what you love, um, does this feel like work? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, some days, not every day, some days. Some days it's like, oh, I got to go and I got to do, and I have to get this done, I have to get that done. And some days it um, can feel like it's work, and other days it can feel like it's I'm having a ball. Generally, those days are what's going on in your life. If your life is happening and you're a happy man and, and, and you have things in your life that are making it rich and wonderful, then you, you just dance on into work and you have a great time. I think your work is hard when your life is hard and when your life is a little confused and when it's not, not landing the way it should. So the key to having a happy work environment is to just to be a happy person, I think. I completely understand that. Absolutely. Well, Phil, thank you so much for your time. I, the fact that you, uh, you know, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm appreciative and grateful for your response and, and, and taking your time and, and just know that, you know, what you do, uh, I can imagine that at a certain point in time, you know, not only are you the owner of the brand, but you at times feel like the product and you are a conduit of entertainment. But, um, you know, I greatly appreciate what you do and I know that I'm not alone in that and um, you know just just know that you continue to be a light for a lot of other people and know that you've gotten me through some dark times and uh, I greatly appreciate all of your contributions um, so you know for those who aren't BSPs how and in what ways can they follow you and find you on social media well you can find me at uh Real, I'm at twitter.com forward slash real Phil Hendry, R-E-A-L Phil Hendry. And then uh, that's more of a personal account. Our show account is simply twitter.com forward slash Phil Hendry show. And then we're over on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Phil Hendry fans, spelled P-H-A-N-S. That was my little, uh, that was my little creative jag, which turns out to be a ridiculous thing. I shouldn't have done that. I should have just spelled fans the way it's spelled because I think people have a hard time finding it. And then I'm over on Instagram at just Phil Henry, P H I L H E N D R I Well, guys, trust me. Take my word for it. It is it is worth every dime because you get more than just entertainment when you listen and follow this man. So again, Phil, we thank you for coming on. And uh, everybody, the show is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. And don't forget to check out the website, www.flagranttake.com. And don't forget to check out Phil, uh, philhenryshow.com. Phil, thank you again. And everybody listening, don't forget, take care of one another. Be good to one another. Take care. Peace. Thanks, Fred.